Hey everybody, it's Adam Farkas. Welcome to another edition of ODY Radio. And as usual, I have with me Paul Farkas. Hi, everyone. Now, a few weeks ago, Paul was able to actually rope in Norm Hafner. And if you've heard that interview, you know the great thing about having Norm here was he was not afraid to speak his mind. And uh, I always love when Paul gets us guests because he always gets the most outspoken folks. And, and today is no exception, actually. Uh, we have what we would call a living legend, Paul. Is that correct? I would say so. And he's, uh, he, I, I think he's still living, right, right Irving? <laughs> <laughs> he's very well living. Yeah. So, so today we have Irving Bennett, and, and Paul and, and Irv go back a very long way. So, Paul, I'm going to let you introduce Irv. Okay. It, it's really my pleasure, and uh, it's a delight to have him here with us today. And, uh, you know, I have a, a long, long two-page bio which I certainly don't want to take up our whole hour together just mentioning, but let me just give a few highlights. One, I was amazed that Irv is prob- Irving is probably uh, one of the last optometrists around who served in the uh, medical corps in the Army Air Force, I think it was called the Army Air Corps, during the big war, during WW2. Wow. So uh, th- that's, that's one thing, and... Uh, Basically, however, as far as optometry is concerned, uh, he's been a member of the Board of Trustees for PCO for as long as anyone could remember. Uh, he was editor and editor, the second editor for the now defunct the Journal of the American uh, Optometric Association, which we may have to discuss a little bit and how that uh, seems to have vanished from the scene. Uh, he was on more committees than you can imagine, and being chair of, of many of them. Uh, he started the National Optometrist of the Year program. Uh, he has, has been and still is an advisor to the American Optometric Association leadership. Whether they take his advice or not, <laughs> that's, a, <laughs> that's a secondary issue. Um, <clears throat> but more important, uh, he affects every optometrist around by being a founder of Advisory Enterprises, which was optometric management, uh, which then morphed into ophthalmology management, optical management, and more important than that, he started Optifair, which then morphed into Vision Expo. Uh, But the most important thing of all is he's, he and uh, Dr. Richard Hopping are the only two optometrists who have received three recognitions, AOA Optometrist of the Year, uh, he, he, he was inducted to the National Hall of Fame, and the recipient of the Distinguished Service Award from the AOA. Uh, with that said, well, Irving, take it away. It's all real good, Robin. We can't wait to hear him. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's not an exaggeration to say that Dr. Irving Bennett is the father of uh, man, of, of optometric managing, the not optometric management, but making uh, the the art and science of optometric management something that every optometrist uh, should have in their practice. Uh, the the uh, managers and those that that are handling uh, management for optometrists are standing on the shoulders of Dr. Irving Bennett. Now, with that said, Irving. Irving, uh, when uh, you considered becoming an optometric management guru or expert, uh, how did you get interested in the whole thing? 
when you first went into practice and you started writing about it and lecturing about it? How did that all come about? How, how, well, how were you it, it first? It was a, a simple thing, Paul. Uh, I got out of the Army and uh, didn't have any money like most other optometrists didn't have. We were not commissioned in those days. And uh, I, I looked for a job and I found out that there weren't any jobs that paid very much and those that did weren't very attractive to me. So I started a practice. I learned squat in school about pain. I do. I learned absolutely nothing. I had no idea on business practices at all. And I floundered. I was successful, probably successful because I, I did things and tried things. But I could understand that people who get out of college, whether it's uh, out of medical school or dental school or osteopathic school or whatever, optometry school, of course, uh, don't have any business sense. They might be well-trained, but they don't have any business sense. So I always had in the back of my mind, somewhere along the line, I have to contribute to, to doing that. You mentioned in the bio that I used to be the editor of the AOA Journal, and I was the editor. And those were the days where the leadership of the AOA looked over my shoulder because we were certain things we could and couldn't publish. Of course, that was before the days of the AOA News, and, and, the, and the publications that were uh, read by most people were not the AOA publication, but probably the old Optometric Weekly. Most of the audience won't remember that, or the review of optometry, which still exists. But anyway, the last editorial I wrote for the AOA Journal, the very last, it was in 1965, in which I said, what optometry needs is to teach and learn business. They should have a publication for business management. They should have schools that would teach business management as part of the core curriculum. The uh, AOA did not like that. The AOA leadership did not like that. But the public liked that. And that was the beginning of the career. Right. I, I've got a question, actually. Why didn't the leadership like that back then? That's kind of interesting to me. It would seem like this is an essential skill for people to survive okay. in the field. <laughs> those of us that lived back in the, in the, and practiced back in the, late 40s and early 50s, knew that the word business, the word sales, was absolutely no-nos in optometry. In, in those days, if an optometrist practiced on the, front, on the, on the ground floor of a, of a storefront, he was not allowed to put glasses in the windows. He was not allowed to say uh, uh, he was uh, eyes examined and glasses fitted. And if he had a sign, it would have to be no more than, it, for upstairs, no more than 11 inches tall, and for the downstairs, no more than 7 inches. I think those numbers are correct. <laughs> yes, <It> was, sir. <laughs> uh, optometry leadership wanted us to give the image to the public that we were real doctors, we were professional people, and we were not commercialists. Yes, I remember exactly because my first practice, we opened up on the second floor uh, in, a, in a professional building. And what greeted me was the uh, local optometric association coming in, not to say hello, welcome, but with a tape measure. To, right. measure, exactly to, to right. measure the sign that I had on the second floor. True story. <laughs> so, right. so after all that happened, Irving, <laughs> optometric management came out. I remember the first issue was a tiny little pamphlet type of thing without any advertising. What, what, what you don't know, Paul, and what most of the people that are listening don't know, that after I wrote that editorial in 1965, a little magazine called Dental Management, published in Stanford, Connecticut, edited by a fellow by the name of Mel Goldberg, read that publication, read my editorial. And he said, my God, what's the difference between optometric management and dental management? Nothing other than the words. So they started this little publication, which was the old Reader's Digest size, 
they charge more for the advertisements than charge in any other of the optometric media and start publishing optometric management articles. He asked me at the time, where I had just left the AOA Journal, to be one of the consulting editors. He asked Larry Creasy and Jerry Stein and a lot of other people to do that. They had no job. They just wanted their names for window dressing. And they started, they started the magazine. I did not start it. They started the magazine in, in 1965, this little publication. Unfortunately, they didn't have very many optometric writers. There weren't very many optometric writers. There weren't Jim Greggs around, and there weren't the, the Jack Runningers that would write for, for those kind of publications. So they took dental management articles and changed the word dentistry to optometry. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's funny, sometimes the proofreader missed it, and sometimes the word dentistry came in the, in the article. Oh, my gosh. And that went on from 1965 in 1970. In 1970, the owners of dental management sold to a company called Har- Harcourt Bruce Johanovich, one of the largest publishers in the United States. And they ran the, the, the figures through uh, uh, the, the computer, and they found out they were losing money on optimistic management because it uh, didn't have any advertising after they found out the articles weren't very sizzly. And so they wanted to sell it, and I was one of the purchasers. Right. Ah. Right. And, and then from there on, um, <laughs> the rest, as they say, is, is history. However, uh, what you did do was something unique called OptiFair, where you got the, all the uh, eye care professionals, including opticians and ophthalmologists and optometrists, to come to one, one kind of meeting in New York at, uh, at, the, at the New York Hilton. Let me briefly tell you how that happened. I shall be brief. Uh, after we got the management, optometric management, we paid a, a sum of 10 thousand dollars for the magazine Lock, Stock, and Barrel. It, the only thing we really bought was the name and the mailing list. So we sent everybody a mailing list, and those optometrists who are over the age of 80 that are listening to this publication got a letter from me, signed by me, saying we were going to continue this magazine and put a sizzle into it. And we asked them to, to renew their subscription. Of course, they never had a subscription, but we asked them to renew their subscription and send us $10, and in one month we got $40,000. Wow. We could have quit then because we worked four times, but we worked hard, and we, we, we established the magazine, and started, then as the magazine grew, we added opticians to it, so we had opt- optical management, we added contact lens specialists like you, Paul, at contact lens forum, and then we added the ophthalmology to it, and so forth. Fast forward to 1977, when we had all of the optical manufacturer industry in one room at the Plaza Hotel in downtown New York, and we had as bait a statistician from Washington, D.C. I'm not sure who, who commissioned him, but he did the first study of the optical industry and the optometric profession ever published. I don't have any idea who did it. I don't think the AOA did it, but they could have possibly. Anyway, in 1977, he estimated that the... Uh, about the total optical industry valued at $6 billion. And he showed where the trends were. And I thought that was a great story, and I hired him to speak. Now, can you imagine, we were in New York, the Basel Hotel, everybody had a very nice lunch, and here comes a speaker who was boring. Not boring, but really boring, as he spit out all these numbers. This was the days before computers and PowerPoint and screens. And he started putting the audience to sleep, and it was very disturbing for me to be at the speaker's table having this, this speaker drone on and on. So when the, when the time 
came about 40 minutes into his speech, and he paused. I stood up and I said, what a wonderful speech, as I applauded. And the audience woke up and applauded. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the speaker said to me, I shall never speak to you again. And I said, you're right about that. (laughs) Anyway, the audience looked at me and I said, what this profession needs is a show in Madison Square Garden for optometrists, ophthalmologists, opticians, and for the consumers with a fashion show. And they applauded spontaneously and vigorously. And my three partners in the back of the room said, Herb Bennett is crazy. And, but we met after the meeting, and that was when Optifair was born. Right. And, True story. And, and you, you, you can't imagine uh, the, the exhibit hall in, in, the, in this rather tiny uh, exhibit <laughs> hall, but it was so packed and it had such a sense of, uh, of success uh, that it was absolutely remarkable. Uh, well, you probably went to that first show in, in March 3, 1978. I don't have any notes, but I have that engraved in my brain. March 3, 1978, I made some very stupid mistakes. I advertised that show all over the country to every optometrist, optician, and ophthalmologist whose name we could get. And we told about this great show. I promised all the exhibitors 5,000 people. We had never had more than 3,700 people at an optometric uh, exhibit before. I, I charged $750 for a 10 by 10 booth. The highest it was ever charged before that was $500. And we took a pre-registration for lectures. We had 13 concurrent lecturers. And lo and behold, the night before the show, as I walked into the Hilton Hotel, that's where we held it. We held it the, the ballroom floor and exhibit floor. Full sold out. Uh, we had 800 exhibitors, 800 registrants, 800. I promised 5,000. My wife, Trudy, our dear Trudy, was said, please try to go to sleep. I couldn't sleep. I came downstairs at 6 a.m. that morning, and I couldn't walk through the, the hotel because there were so many people. We ended up with 6,511 registrants, all optometrists, no wives counted, no, no uh, staff counted. We had 6,511 people. The floor was four people. The fire department told us that they were going to shut us down if we hadn't let any more in, and it was electric. <laughs> wow. So, uh, and then uh, after a couple of years, it, it morphed into Vision Expo. How, how did that come about? Well, the, the, the inside story of that is that the Optometric, Opt- Optometric uh, Manufacturing Association who were at the Optical Manufacturing Association, of whom I was an associate member, decided that why should Irv Bennett run a show and make all this money on the exhibitors when they could do the same thing? Because that's what they did in England, and that's what they do in England. The Manufacturing Association runs those, those shows. But one fellow, and I would name him, uh, oh God, he probably has deceased, George Rich, who used to own Starline, Magazine, Starline Optical Company in New Jersey, got on the floor, and he said, as long as Irv Bennett is running Optifair, I will not support any show that this, this uh, association runs, and that my friends won't do the same thing. So the OMA laid back and let me uh, do it. When we sold uh, Advisory Enterprises in uh, 1987 and got our money, I released George Rich from his promise, and that's when uh, Vision Expo started. Right. Well, amazing story. Now, to just to, to move into another area, we have to put your AOA hat on now. Uh, you've always been active in the AOA, you know, beginning in the very earliest years when it was more becoming an AOA member was more than just the price of admission. 
when you were an AO member, you were proudly put up a plaque and you had certain uh, ethical rules that, that were your guidelines. Uh, how do you see uh, what's happened with the AOA through the years? Well, I think AOA's current board, or the, and the boards that they've had for the last few years, are probably the best educated optometrists that were ever on AOA boards. And the first thing I can say is bring back the smoke-filled rooms, because in the smoke-filled rooms, we may not have had educated optometrists, but we had optometrists that had compassion for the profession, not that the current people don't, but their compassion is expressed differently. We had the members, the members of the boards of years ago were probably interested in elevating our profession, and they were true advocates. They did not want divisiveness. They did not want divisiveness. And, and if I could give the AOA board a shaking, I would shake them up and say, stop it. Stop this, this fighting over such thing as board certification. Stop this fighting over the numbers of schools. Stop all this business, and let's be optometrists first. We need to expand up the professional optometry, as I will talk about in a few minutes, but we have to stay together. We can't afford to have our profession divided as it is today. Right. And, and if you were actually made king for a day, I'm really curious as to, as to you know, what, what's your perspective? What would you do if you actually had the power? If, what, what I do today? Yeah. So what would you do if you could actually waltz in, take over? What would you do? Well, first of all, I would, I would, I would correct the mistake of board certification. Now, let me say that before anybody takes that out of context. I'm not opposed to board certification. I'd like to do it the way ophthalmology did it. When my son, who was an optometrist turned ophthalmologist, became an ophthalmologist, he became board certified after his residency. He did not have to take another exam. The minute he became to his residency, he became board certified. And he's board certified today practicing in Kentucky. I believe that when the, uh, the board certification resolution was adopted, and I, don't, I question how it was adopted, but when it was adopted in, in 2009, I believe, it should have had in it an amnesty for all of the optometrists who had passed state boards. And it should have taken effect for the re-examination of those optometrists who were licensed after that. That's the way ophthalmology did it, and that's the way it should have been done. If they had done that, it would have been fine. So now I'm saying, let's go backwards. Let's, let's say that those optometrists who have uh, passed their licensure and are, and are TPA and DPA certified should become board certified through the state boards, that's board certification, and, and stop this nonsense of trying to divide the profession. Right. So then we have the, the, the other issue, uh, which many optometrists feel might, might be the downfall of optometry, is the excessive number of optometric graduates and the opening of optometry colleges. You almost hear almost one new one a year. Uh, so, so what is, what's your take on all these uh, new schools? Well, it, it's not quite that bad of one a year, but I was on a, an AOA manpower study way back maybe 15 years ago in which we said that if optometry could fill its, its chore in life, its goal in life, its, its expertise, there would be plenty of patients to go around. Now, that was before the days in which autorefractors are as as wonderful as they are today. But what's going to happen today, if we don't do something else, is that we're going to have a, a, a overabundance of optometrists because machines and ophthalmologists 
and pediatricians and PCPs, primary care physicians, will will do our job. What in in order to be paid properly under Medicare and under the health care program, PCPs are going to have to to have an eye examination from from patients. And the way they're going to do the eye examination is through hiring optometrists or, or taking fundus pictures and, and sending them to, to uh, somebody to interpret them to get around this law. So optometrists has to say, okay, we've got to expand our, 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 our goals. We, we have to, to reinforce the COE, which is a committee, a commission on optometric education, so we don't get schools that are merely opening, merely to, to sell education. And, and producing optometrists like one of them is definitely going to do. Uh, we have to stop that, and we can do that through the COE and be, be enforce that. But we also have to expand the parameters of the profession so that optometrists can do what the uh, uh, the legislator in, in California is trying to do in California, and that is to expand the profession so that they will be able to handle patients who are uh, uh, have systemic diseases that have eye symptoms and eye uh, signs. So that would mean that, that a, uh, they may have to add a year of education to the schools. They may have to train up the current optometrists uh, to, 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 do, uh, to do this type of work like they did when they got TPAs and DPAs. So, but optometrists should, who should be the first line of defense against diabetes and high blood pressure because they see the patient more frequently than a PCP and they should be able to treat those conditions. Once you expand the parameters of optometry, and once you control the schools by, by having a strong COE, you'll have no problem. Now, in addition to that, if anybody's been watching, in Illinois, there's an optometrist by the name, a retired optometrist by the name of Floyd Meisner. Floyd Meisner has, has recognized, as does Bill Sharpton down in, in Georgia, they both recognize at the same time that patients of theirs and and, and Friends and people on this phone don't enjoy 3D movies because they don't have binocularity. So they have worked. With, so Meisner has worked with a fellow by the name of Willis Johnson, who owns 150 theaters in the Chicago area, to to give to give clients of the theater uh, a, a booklet, which he does uh, after you see a 3D movie or before you see a 3D. It provides saying that if you don't see the the depth in this movie, get your eyes examined by an optometrist. So optometry not only has to, to, to move that way all over the country, the AOA has to join with the National Association of Theater Owners, NATO, and, and, and get together. And optometrists have to start examining more for, for binocularity than they currently do. Now, there's, it, it, the Meisner has done so well that an optometrist in, the, in Illinois by the name of Ingrid Vargas Lorenzana, I hope I pronounced it correctly, and an optometrist by the name of Michael Halakas have been named the king and queen of 3D, and they're going to receive an award. They already got one award, but they're going to receive an award, like an Academy Award, in February in Hollywood, because the theater owners have something at stake. They, they want to get that 20 million people who probably have binocular dis- dysfunction to be able to appreciate the 3D movies so they can go there. And optometrists have something at stake. What a what a wonderful marriage! Right, right. Uh, just just to expand a little bit about your letter to the editor in the AOA recent AOA uh, news. Uh, so, so you feel that basically optometry should become sort of a a primary care profession for 
general examinations. Uh, could you just expand a little bit about yeah, that? Well, let me, let me tell you and the others what happened. I went to my, my, my concierge physician who said, you've got a little spot near your nose that I think is, might be uh, cancerous. Why don't I send you to an ophthalmologist? And she sent me to an ophthalmologist here in Sarasota, and the name could have been a woman or man. I didn't know the person she was sending me to. I said, please make the appointment. She did. And so I walk into the office. I was the uh, only person in the, the, the reception area. I was the first patient there that afternoon. And a very well-dressed uh, lady, physician, I don't know, who came to the thing and said, come on in, uh, 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 Dr. Bennett. And uh, so she sat me down and said, would you like me to check your whole body in addition to that little spot on your nose? And I said, yes. And so she did. And she gave me a very good examination. And she said, well, I'm going to take a biopsy of these two little spots and to see if, you, if they're cancerous. And I said, fine. And then looking around, I said, I'm curious. Is there a doctor on the premises? And she looked at me and she said, no, he's down in Venice, which is very close to Sarasota. And I said, oh, you work by yourself? And she says, yes, I'm a PA, a physician's assistant. Now, I was very impressed with, with her, her work. So I didn't say anything about it, but I did say, well, would I have gone there had I known I wasn't going to see a dermatologist? And I'm not so sure I would have, but I'm not so sure I wouldn't have either. Comes uh, a, a week later, I get the call and say that the biopsy was positive, and they made an appointment. So I came to see the appointment to get the, the surgery done, and I walk in, and another PA, I now look at the badge, it says PA, uh, injects me with the, with the uh, anesthetic, preps me for the operation, and then the physician walks in, he was a man, and he cuts out the, the, the thing, said that we're going to check it to see if it's okay, and then we'll let you know. And uh, I went to the, to the reception area and sat there for an hour, and he finally said, no, everything was fine. And I went in and saw him again, and he said, okay, uh, the, one of the physician's assistants, uh, my surgical physician assistant, he said, will now close the wound. And she did. She gave me 18 stitches. Now, that's a lot of stitches. The, the wound was closed beautifully. I never saw him again. So I never saw him to make the diagnosis, to do the original biopsy. I never saw him after he closed the wound. He was the technician that did the cutting. And that is what modern medicine is going to be. Now, why can't optometrists do the same thing? I get my eyes examined. I have high blood pressure. Why can't the optometrist order the various tests prescribe the medicine to control the blood pressure or the diabetes or what other systemic disease. And that's where I think we've got to go. And that's what the bill in California will do if indeed it passes and if indeed the COA and the AOA support it. Right. And I, I actually just have one, one other question for you because we're running out of time here. Um, my understanding is, uh, you know, getting back to the optical side of things, you were one of the first uh, you were one of the first clinicians to actually use progressive lenses, uh, Varilux lenses in the country. Is that true? Well, back in 1964, when there was a rule in New York, uh, I took my family to, to Copenhagen, uh, Denmark, to the IOL meeting. There's no longer the IOL. That was the International Optical Opti Optometric Optical League. It's now called the World Optometric Congress. And I went there essentially because I read a lot of uh, publications, and I read in a British publication about this fantastic lens that was developed by a Frenchman by the name of Burton Bernard Martinez in France uh, in 1959 that would, that would allow you to allow the vision to go from distance to near without a, a, a line 
uh, they called them invisible bifocals, but they weren't. It was like the automatic transmission of an automobile instead of the stick shift. So I was fascinated with it. I uh, uh, looked over the lens. I was invited to Paris, went to Paris on that same trip, uh, watched the movie, watched the lenses. They gave me six lenses to to market test in the United States at no fee. Uh, I, I had to send them to France for fabrication. I, I used four of them, was successful with three of them, gave one to George Elmstrom. Those old guys on this, on this uh, table, on this broadcast, will remember George Elmstrom from El Segundo, California. was a real good uh, practice management man. And to Brad Wild, who was vice president of Ohio State at that time. They both did people, and they were successful. And so I was asked to, uh, I, I began importing the lenses, the only person in the United States to do that. That was the Verilux lens. And uh, I was asked by, by SL, SL, that was prior to SLR, to uh, form a company in the United States for the franchise. And though I know it would make millions of dollars, I did not do it because I'm an optometrist and I didn't want to get into business at that time. Right, right. Oh, wow. It's a great True story. story. <laughs> <laughs> just are, are you kicking yourself at this point? I, I, did you know that the Verilux would become what it did? <laughs> you know, you know, I haven't. And I've had several opportunities like that. I, I, I'm married to a, a very fine lady for 68 years. And she says to me every time I come in with one of these, what she might think is ring-brained ideas, do we really have to do that, Irving? That's what she said when I, when I was asked to go to Portland, Oregon, to, to be the Pacific University. That's what she asked me when I, when I was invited to fill the Benedict chair in, in Houston for a year and get on faculty. And that's what she told me when I went to New England and she wanted to meet, and I was going to be head of the clinics. Do we really have to do that? And the answer has always been, no, we don't really have to do it, even mm-hmm. though it would be successful. So yeah. when she said the same thing about Verilux, I understood. Yeah, and I think our listeners understand. I, I can't imagine anyone listening doesn't kick themselves for opportunities and who say, what if, what if I would have done that, that, and that. So I, you, I can only eat one banana at early in the morning. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, just to round out a little bit more, you've been so active with your uh, the college where you graduated from, the Pennsylvania College of Optometry, uh, and you set up the Bennett Center. Whatever happened with the Bennett Center? What's well, going the Bennett on Center now? still exists. Uh, it probably didn't do what I really wanted it to do. The idea was when I when I got optometric management, the magazine and Optifair, I, I did think that it was necessary to have teaching in the schools on business. They still don't teach. They have the the Bennett Center in in at PCO is very active. Janice McNoney is the is the director and has been for the last eight or nine years. Uh, it's it's been an impact, a little impact, but nothing like it should have been. I was hoping that that uh, idea would translate into other schools. It did, because Jerry Hayes started one down at Southern College of Optometry, but no, but it didn't catch on like I had hoped it would be. I had hoped that the schools would begin to understand that optimi- the optometric profession is a business. And it, though you don't have to be blatant in advertising, you don't have to be blatant. You have to know certain public relations things. You have to understand certain things. And these are the things they should teach at school. They should teach a lot about uh, uh, pricing their services, pricing their materials, whatever. But uh, it, it's, it still exists. It still does a good job, but nothing like I had hoped it would do. Right. Right. Well, Dr. Bennett, it looks like we're just about out of time, but thank you so much for being here with us today. And, and I hope uh, if people have questions for you on ODY, or maybe you can come onto the site uh, and answer them. 
Right. Um, we, we look forward to uh, the comments of, of our readers after hearing this program because I'm sure it, it gave them a background that they never knew. And I, as a matter of fact, I learned a few new things when I thought I, there was nothing new under the sun. But Irving, you sure so showed me something today. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thank you for having me.